kindly just introduce yourself so that the public will understand who you are and what you do and what brings you to the table today. Thank you very much, moderator. I am honored this afternoon to join the Distinguished Team. As you have said, my name is David Deritu, and I work at IPOA as the Director of Management and Legal Services, Independent uh, Policing Oversight Authority. Thank you very much. We will next have Ms. Emily Treyer from the Attorney General's Office. Kindly take the floor and let us know where it is you plug in to the topic today. Thank you so much, Chair, for this um, invitation, opportunity. As you've heard, my name is Emily Chua. I'm the Director of Legal Affairs at the Office of the Attorney General and Department of Justice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Dr. Odor, we hear a lot about you and your big role as a government pathologist. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and let, break it down a little bit <clears throat> for us, what you do and why you are part of the panel today? Okay, I'm Dr. Dua Johansen. I'm a forensic pathologist. I'm also a doctor. I head the division called Forensic and Pathology Services at the Ministry of Health. And uh, my main duty is uh, doing autopsies, presenting uh, my reports in court as an expert witness. Also investigate uh, deaths uh, which are suspicious, deaths which are homicide, accident. And also we usually partake to work with other stakeholders, including police, IMLO, IPOA, in, uh, in all this that we do. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. And we have then Mr. Karioki Karanja. Thank you, Chair. As you've just correctly said, I'm Karioki Karanja. I'm an advocate of the High Court of Kenya. I'm a practitioner. I practice law in the name and style of Karioki Karanja and Company Advocates. Previously, I have worked with International Justice Mission. Thank you very much. Do we have Joki in? Yes, I am. Okay, wonderful. I gave a brief just about who you are, what you do, but this is time for you to tell the public in your own words, why it is you are part of this panel and what you will offer. Um, my name is Njoki Gashanja from Gedharai Social Justice Center. I also sit at the Social Justice Center's working group and the steering committee. Um, the Social Justice uh, Centers is actually a movement of uh, is a network of human rights defenders, mostly uh, from the informal settlements. We need to tell the people out there what is our call to action. But before we get there, um, PPTM, I just you know really drum it in and and round up this before we go into plenary. Karibu. Hi, everybody. The people who have spoken uh, before me have really uh, done a good job, and therefore um, I will not go into too much detail. What I would like us to appreciate is that um, the, if the the process towards the enactment of the National Coroner Service Act in Kenya was not only technical but also political. Um, why do I say that? I say that because when you look at what Derito said. The history we have of unresolved uh, killings, unresolved deaths, you know, is so deep that we have left communities traumatized for a long time. So I hear Joki talk about uh, uh, Madare and other places and Gidorai, but that is very recent. We have historical uh, deaths, uh, you know, some mysterious, some not so mysterious, but uh, made to look mysterious. Uh, for, for political reasons, and those have never been resolved. And therefore, as we discuss the implementation, 
we need to understand the political nuances around this as well. Uh, you saw in the in the chat I was talking about the National Coroner Service uh, Bill uh, having been offered, uh, quote unquote, uh, as a piece of uh, one of the key pillars of the police reforms agenda that uh, was offered at some point. It was actually proposed even before the IPOA Act or the IPOA Bill. It was being discussed way before. And therefore, what happened is that in 2011, we succeeded uh, very, very quickly in getting the NPSC Act, the IPOA Act, the National Police Service Commission Act, but then uh, the National Coroner Service Act was, was dropped because it had no ownership. The only ownership it had was the victims, as Joki was uh, articulating. The victims and their families, the dead and their families, were very keen to have uh, a reform agenda within the police that uh, captured that particular concern. But the police had no big interest. The members of parliament at that time had no, no keen interest. Until we got uh, the, the Parliamentary Human Rights Association being the champions of this particular law uh, within government and the you know, civil society uh, being uh, the, the champions outside, and of course the, the families of the dead. So that is the effort that led us here, and that is the effort that will take us to implementation, to having a strong national corona service uh, in place as soon as possible. And I would like to appreciate the leadership of, uh, of Emily at the AG's office, but also uh, the interest uh, of the, the keenness of the current AG in ensuring that the service is up and running. Emily, we cannot wait. And I think Joki has told you clearly, we cannot wait. Uh, we, two, six months is too long. <laughs> six months is too long. We waited and waited until 2011, not, not three years, 2011, when the other laws concerning police reforms why not? I do know there are concerns, but I think those concerns can be addressed uh, uh, once we have the service up and running. Uh, one of those concerns is why do we have an all-encompassing law? Why didn't we restrict this only to the investigation of deaths uh, in custody? The reason behind that was that when we went to, uh, to do lobbying for this law in Parliament, members of Parliament advised us to have a broader agenda around the, this law because they don't want another group to bring another law that covers deaths within medical situations. Because reportable deaths are reportable deaths, both in the medical field and the legal field. Reportable deaths, if you combine the two, you get medical legal. And so in the medical legal field, uh, reportable deaths are not different. There's none that is different from other because what you're saying is it needs to be investigated. So that's why we brought on board uh, you know, an all-encompassing law that covers reportable deaths in all suspicious deaths, deaths in custody, deaths in medical situations. And as a country, we are the better for it, instead of having so many small pieces of legislation. So uh, what I, li I like to, to challenge the panelists uh, today is basically to help us to craft a very clear uh, uh, way forward with regard to working closely with uh, Emily and the AG's office to ensure that we have you know, a Christmas gift, if not a, if not Mashuja Day gift for the families and communities that have been traumatized by these uh, suspicious and reportable deaths. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kiama. That was really engaging. And just um, with your last words, you know, it's not, you know, as, as a psychologist, I can, I can um, expertly put that out there. That it, it's, it's not just the families that are traumatized. I mean, we have a nation in trauma around how we view any of the uniformed 
people, particularly the police, because those are the ones closest to us. And if there will be, and if IPOA wants there to be, a different way that we engage with the people that you oversight, if they will be brought down to community and be seen as Utumishi Kwawote and not seen as a destructive force, and that's not to say they're not amazing police there, but as we know psychologically where the pain is, that's what we hold on to. That's what we remember. And the trauma is, is, is a national trauma because we are witness to it vicariously, secondarily, but we are witness to whatever goes on in the ground. And I think when I look at some of the comments, and there's a, a wonderful one uh, from Delton, Degwa, and, and, and he believes this, there's no better time for this discussion, especially now when this police accountability is called for, not only in Kenya, but all over the world. But if we look here, is how can we ask for police accountability in a space where they cannot be impartial in checking themselves? So if they're the ones to preserve a scene and the scene of the crime, if in this case or in whichever case is actually committed by them, how can they actually be the ones working? I mean, you don't need to be a rocket science to understand that that won't happen. I mean, it happens in our home, even on very domestic issues. If you have a child and they're the ones who pick something that was a forbidden fruit and you come back and ask them to be the ones to tell you about it, chances are they won't. And that's why you ask for a witness account. And when we talk about witness accounts, we have Quinton Haley asking, this question goes to you, Ipoa, is what, what is your witness protection program like? And what kind of safeguards do you have for the families of the victim of extrajudicial killings and for those who come forward? And, you know, it might be slightly outside what this particular webinar is, but it's a, it's a key point because we're here for the advocacy and the education of the public as well. So, Mr. Diretu. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think uh, quite a number of issues uh, have come, but, but before probably I respond to the witness protection, I, I wish to comment on uh, one or two items. One, thank you very much, Emily, for bringing, up, uh, bringing us up to speed. Just like uh, 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 I think as Kiama uh, or somebody said, in fact, I've been wondering what, what has been happening to this act, the National Corona Service Act. It's really, it's really refreshing and uh, probably it creates a lot of hope uh, when Emily says that something is, is, uh, uh, is being done and then probably sooner than later, this act will be operationalized. I would probably make a, a, an appeal uh, through this forum if probably uh, Emily from uh, their side, they feel probably uh, stakeholders, if I may call them so, including IPOA, the civil society, and all the participants in this forum can make any contribution in helping this committee to move as quickly as possible, then all of us would be more than willing uh, to join the train and, of course, make a contribution. Uh, I also uh, want to comment on uh, what uh, Njoki and uh, Karioki said uh, about uh, preserving the scene and tampering with evidence. Uh, I, I think the, the tragedy about the whole thing is this. When institutions collapse and they don't perform as expected, so many things go wrong. Look, IPOA has probably a workforce of about 200 
and 20, 250. And among those, only probably about 50, less than 100 are investigators. Uh, of course, all the others are lawyers like me and, uh, and, uh, and uh, whatever else has to be done. In this country, we have well over 100,000 police officers. And remember, constitutionally and legally, the mandate to maintain law and order belongs to the police. It has never been removed from there. And therefore, the first responders to any criminal scene most likely will be police. But the question, and I think this is what... Uh, Cancer uh, Karaoke said about the blue code of silence. You know, we are not saying that every police officer in this country is bad. No, we have very good police officers, very professional. However, there are a number of bad apples, and those are the ones who tamper with the scene, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know how this can be resolved other than professionalizing and, of course, displaying the service. And that's what IPOA, uh, IG, NPS, and Internal Affairs Unit have been doing. And, and we thank, of course, uh, the civil service uh, for uh, playing a very key role uh, in doing this. Now, IPOA has put in place a number of things that, uh, that, that uh, probably can help that type of situation so that our officers uh, can be able to move to the scene as quickly as possible. We have uh, a department of rapid response here at IPOA who are supposed to move with speed. As soon as we get to know that a crime has been committed by a police officer, because that's where we belong, then our officers are dispatched at whatever uh, time of the day and uh, night uh, to the scene. Uh, I want to give this number, uh, Monderita. This is a toll-free number, meaning that you can call from uh, whatever uh, uh, network, 1559-1559. This is a toll-free number. For now, we are, of course, receiving calls between 8 and 5. 8 and 5, due to so many reasons, uh, including, of course, COVID-19 and the uh, lack of adequate uh, human capital. But 1559 is a toll-free number. You can call from whichever network that you belong, and then we shall be able to respond and send our officers. Please let us make use of that line so that we can uh, send uh, our, our officers. Of course, we have also tried to devolve, and therefore our services are in Mombasa, uh, Galiza, uh, here in Nairobi, Nyeri, uh, Meru, Nakuru, Erdolet, Kisumu, uh, Kakamega, please make use uh, of that. Uh, of course, uh, let me, with your permission, Mandelita also mentioned this that was raised by Joki. She was very passionate, and I, I, and I, really, uh, I really like what she said. The case of Yasin Moyo, I want to state that the officer found capable has already been charged. The matter is already in court in record time. And we are waiting to see uh, which direction the matter takes. Uh, of course, our justice system doesn't move as quickly as we would want it to move. Uh, we hope such cases would be resolved as soon as possible, but it takes a while. But I hope and believe that justice will catch up with that officer. The Rashid matters, uh, Joki said he has well over 30 cases. I am aware at IPO we have a number of them and uh, a number of them have already been submitted to the DPP. Uh, one of them uh, has been brought back to IPOA to cover some uh, a few areas because of a witness who is uh, out of the country, but uh, we'll do that as quickly as we can uh, so that uh, this officer uh, may, may face the law at the appropriate time. In fact, this is such a big matter that uh, if you look at the media today, I think in the start, there's a whole story about Rashid. Uh, IPOA, of course, uh, Joki said we need to pull up our socks. We are limited in so many ways, including resources, but we are doing the best that we can in the circumstances. But I want to mention this. 
I started by saying that the role of the police as that of maintaining law and order has never shifted. It belongs to them. I were given some mandate to investigate crimes by the police. But the law, including the all the way from the constitution, never took away that same role, even of investigating police officers from DCI and NPS generally, such that in most cases, we find ourselves in investigating a matter, and also police officers are investigating a matter. We have approached uh, DCI uh, in uh, so many forums, uh, Mr. Kenoti, uh, in a gentleman way, uh, has always stated that whenever IPO is investigating a matter, the officers from NPS should stay away. We have been trying to, to have this one, uh, of course, put in the law so that a matter that belongs to the mandate of IPO, no one else, including DCI, should charge. Uh, I hope we shall be able to, uh, to have that law amended accordingly. But the reason, as I have said, is because constitutionally, the, the maintenance of law and order and investigating crime, uh, being part of that, still belongs to the police. But let me come now to the issue you raised about witnesses. You know, police officers hold a special position in our society. Remember, in most cases, police officers are armed or at least they have access to arms or to armory. And therefore, if such an officer turns out to be a criminal, he even becomes more dangerous than an ordinary criminal in the streets. And therefore, it calls upon uh, our, our institutions to take care of any whistleblower or any person who is a witness. But we know in this country, again, the problem. We have uh, a body uh, called Witness Protection uh, uh, authority or agency that is supposed to take care of witnesses who are endangered because of the information they possess, being potential witnesses in uh, uh, sensitive cases or having crucial information. Uh, but of course, like all, uh, all public institutions, they have uh, their, limi their limitations, including budgetary allocations, and therefore they may not always be able to take all the witnesses that we would want them to take. Uh, there is a limitation. Remember, as I have said, a matter involving a police officer is a very sensitive matter. And we would assume, and correctly so, that any potential witness or a witness in any matter concerning a police officer, in most cases, their lives are endangered. However, of course, the witness protection agency may not be able to accommodate all of them. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you. Because um, the bulk of the questions are actually landing uh, on your doorstep, Mr. Dirito. And uh, a lot of it is really about uh, people feeling that it actually the oversight role of the police. And if this act is going to be part of that oversight, then the duty bearers like you should be the ones at the forefront championing for that act. And um, maybe in less measure, but just as passionately, Madam Choi, you're getting also a lot of questions. I think one of them that I tried uh, to give you is really looking at Section 14 of that Act and really wondering that this, this coroner general appointment and, and, you know, how important it is. But, but what is it? Why is it that you require a massive budget? when it seems a matter far more of capacity. Um, having said that, I, I want to respect what Dr. Durr talked about, certain aspects of what can improve once that office is there. But I think the general question is, uh, for them to do what they need to do, having that one person come in and then grow the rest of the department sounds like it would be the logical thing to do when there is no money, as it would be in any other kind of system. 
I'm not sure whether you could answer to this so that people understand when you talk about budget and being budget being one of the biggest obstacles here, what are you actually saying? Or is it buying time or whitewashing, you know, um, what actually seems to be in some kind of oversight? and not the same kind of oversight as the police from your end, and slowing down a process that is very critical to the masses. Over to you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, There have been several issues that have been raised, and I would like to respond to them uh, as follows. One was on the issue on delay in establishment of the service. Now, um, both both ages, the former Gidu Migai and Kiara Karaoke have been very, very concerned on the number of extrajudicial killings that have been happening, and have put all efforts towards fast-tracking the establishment of the service. But you must know that the office of the AG does not work in a vacuum. His, his uh, efforts, the measures he takes, are also dependent on other institutions, other processes, and uh, he must comply with those institutions, he must comply with the other processes. If the, the judiciary didn't pass that decision, we would have, be having a national corona service today. But as you know, as soon as we started the process, the High Court said, no, no, you do not have the, the capacity, you do not have the authority to deal with the issues of this, this, this service because you are not a cabinet secretary. And uh, of course, the AG quickly appealed. But you must know, the lawyers must know that just because you appeal a case and you go through the process doesn't mean that you will prevail. There can be issues that you can also lose. So what he did immediately is to try and draft an amendment to the to that act, to all the acts, to ensure that he's able to deal with them. And I didn't want to go to the merits of the case and everything, but the issue was that when you look at the Constitution, uh, I think as an article, I can't remember the article, but it clearly says that cabinet shall comprise of one, the president, deputy president, the attorney general, and the cabinet secretary. Meaning that the AG, if they wanted the AG to be a cabinet secretary, they did not have put the AG to the remained cabinet secretary. So that was a huge constitutional issue. Now, the, the Igidu, on, in uh, deciding to come up with that amendment and to uh, relied on the executive order of the president, which said that uh, the AG would be in charge of matters d- 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 uh, dealing with justice. But the court again said that you cannot use an executive order to rectify a, 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 leg- a piece of legislation. You cannot do that. And the, um, another problem was the method of, of swearing in of uh, appointing the AG was very different from that of a cabinet secretary. First of all, the AG does not take an oath of office. Secondly, he's, um, he does not he serves at the pleasure of the president. It's the president who appoints him. But a cabinet secretary must get the approval of parliament, and the AG did not get an approval of parliament. So when the case came through, the decision was made. The office of the AG quickly drafted an amendment to change the act its act, the Office of the Attorney General Act, so that now the AG takes the oath of office, now the AG must get the approval of parliament. And now the new Kiara Karioki, the new AG, had to take the oath of office and to take the, um, and to uh, and to get parliamentary approval. So that cleaned it up a bit. But when the issue, again, the amendment went before parliament, parliament shelved it. What could the AG have done at that point? There's nothing they could have done. The the parliament said this has a lot of constitutional issues. We might have to look at the entire constitution and even amend it before we can allow this. But let us shelf it until such a time that we have more time to deal with it. So, But the problem is now when they came back to deal with it, we have to start afresh. We have to draft the amendment again. We have to take it to cabinet for its approval and then to 
to the committee, National Assembly Committee, JLAC, for adoption before it goes. That takes time. That takes time. And if, like I said earlier, if the AG, it was all in his control, I'm sure by now we'd have had the, this uh, service. Now, the next issue question was on the supplementary budget. Somebody raised the issue that uh, there is a supplementary budget in September. Why can't we situate the, the budget, our budget, National Corona Service budget in that? And I had explained in my presentation that is, that is what we are, we are targeting. The implementation co committee has finalized the, coming up with the budget. We have now written to the Treasury to approve. According to government regulations, National Treasury has to approve that budget before it can, you can uh, request for the funding. Um, and that has been done. It will be placed before, it will be, we will request for that money in the supplementary budget. Thirdly, the issue of political will. I don't really want to discuss the political will because it's quite out of my my level at this point, but I must tell you that the AG has been summoned several times by Senate, has been summoned by the National Assembly to explain why this, why there's so much extrajudicial killings and what is he doing in, in order to come up with steps to, to, to address this matter. And one of the issues is the full operationalization of the Prevention of Torture Act. One of the steps that the age is taking is to ensure the Prevention of Torture Act is, is uh, operational. It has been operationalized, but it's not been implemented. Secondly, is the National Corona Service service that must be established. And again, as we sit there with the senators, with the National Assembly, now I'm speaking to the matter somebody raised about the only deal. We'll only deal with it if it's in the, the upper echelons. If there's a problem with them, that's when the service will be established. But it's not true because this thing affects all of us. The senators, the parliamentarists, uh, the MPs will say that, you know, I have a brother who was killed by police the other day. I have a, my cousin. I have my father. My So it touches everybody. And all, everybody is concerned about this matter. So it's. I think the government, it's not about the upper echelons or the lower. It's, it's the processes which are just taking too long. And uh, there's a question also on the budget, why, why the budget is too high. And according to Section 14, discussions on the structure by the Peace Public Service Commission shall be done in consultation with the Corona General. This clearly calls that the CG to be appointed to, and together with him build structures for the office. Now I'll call your attention to Section 9 of the National Corona Service Act, which says the Corona General shall be appointed by the Cabinet Secretary in consultation with the with the with the public service commission, so we cannot have a coroner general until we, talking to the public service until he is appointed. So we have to appoint him first. So we've set up this implementation committee to start drafting the structures, the um, the human rights framework, human resource framework, and the budget before even coming up with the recruiting the coroner general. Because once he's recruited, he will need an office. He will need coroners, and they all have to be paid. So there must be a budget for to run that office, to operationalize it, to establish it, establish it. So that is why, and it's not, I don't think one can say it's the budget, budget is low. It might not be that low. I don't think it is because you will have to have all these coroners. And according to the act, I think also you have to have coroners in the counties as well. And then we, we, we will have the coroner general also, he has to be paid. They must have offices which must be paid for by public funds. So that is why now we are preparing that budget before we appoint the coroner. So that, okay. uh, what? Oh, so, sorry, to, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I thought this would be a great time for you then to make a call to action to those naysayers out there who've been waiting and believing that, uh, you know, it's it, it, too slow, nothing's happening. 
What are you saying you can commit your office to doing and how soon can that then be seen to actually be in operation? Okay, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying we are very, very eager to have this National Corona Service Act uh, service set up as soon as possible. I gave it six okay. months because I know oh, the processes months. of government. Okay. Yeah, I know okay. the processes of government. They take time. I don't want to tell you that it's going to be two months. And even after we we have this, we get the budget, hopefully in September, then there has to be time to say, to recruit, to advertise the positions and to recruit, which takes time. It can't be done in a day or two. But they are, like I said before, the AG is committed, committed okay. to ensuring that this service is set up within the shortest time possible. Thank you. That's a wonderful um, call to action. And it must be music to uh, Mr. Peter Kiyama's ears because he, he's asking for that Christmas present. And, and definitely, if it could come sooner, we're happy to take that present. Um, because when you look at, you know, Maureen Mukalo, and I think the question you answered was from Crispin, but the understanding around the legalities of things when you are on the ground are such that it's a criminalization of poverty. And, and this is the ideas people have, but what they see actually happening. So to build back trust in just governance structures in this country outside the Coroner's Act, and this being a key issue, of course, for this, is going to take the job of all your agencies to be able to put it forward. Um, but Mr. Kiyama, I'm going to ask for you to come on. And, and, and there's a question that's come in. And maybe as you do that, also uh, put in your call to action. Because the question is, how can you as CSOs participate to actualize the implementation of the plan? Thank you, Corindy. Um, in terms of actualizing uh, our dream and meeting the expectations of uh, the nation that you rightly point out is uh, there's national trauma, you know, across our land. Uh, Dr. Bichanga will tell you that uh, we are in the process of organizing a consultation around um, that particular issue with the relevant uh, stakeholders, a small consultation, so that even as uh, Emily is working on the other side, uh, on the formalities, we are also working on this other side uh, in terms of uh, preparing the ground uh, for the operationalization, so that we are not just sitting and waiting, because we do know, and we had a good experience with the National Police Service Act, when the National Police Service Commission was being set up, none of them had been, you know, in a commission like that. And therefore, they were starting, they were pioneers, just like uh, the first board of IPO. And the first task that the National Police Service Commission was given was to vet over 100,000 police officers. And what we did then is therefore say there was no vetting uh, formula present in Kenya, nor did we know of any globally which was a transitional vetting process. And therefore, what we did is we came together as civil society and developed uh, uh, vetting guidelines and vetting tools. And so by the time the commissioners were being sworn in and uh, you know, settling down, we were able to uh, 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 engage them and present to them our own understanding of what the vetting meant, the transitional vetting of the National Police Service. And sure enough, because our script then, therefore, was the only one available in Kenya, they gladly took it up, and that's what they used uh, to roll out the vetting process. Of course, they had to format it in a manner that uh, is agreeable within government uh, standards. But largely, the principles, the tools that they used, uh, the values that they embraced in the in the in the 
in the initial vetting process because they lost uh, direction later on. Uh, is basically what we outside here uh, had developed. And so there's a need, we have realized uh, after the, the update from Emily, um, that yes, uh, we had already discussed with uh, Dr. Bichanga that he'll convene us, uh, the key stakeholders uh, on this other side, to start discussing that and ask ourselves, how do we ensure that by the time the, the good work that Emily is doing is ready, uh, to be brought uh, for, uh, to the public, how do we? What do we need to prepare the ground for this? How will we engage? And we did the same with IPOA. When IPOA was being uh, established, we caucused the civil society and we asked ourselves, how do we ensure that this new um, uh, institution uh, links clearly with us and with citizens and is able to deliver on the promise? So that's one of the things that. Uh, we would uh, put on the table as Zimlu that uh, we will be convening very soon uh, the key stakeholders to look at this and just to reflect on the journey so far traveled and what are the next steps as we await the AG's office to guide on the technical and formal business within government. Oh, no, wonderful. But um, let me take it to Njoki because the question was how CSOs participate in making sure the implementation is done. So, Ms. Kashanja, how do you ensure as people who are actually on the ground with the parties involved. How do you make certain that this implementation continues to be done and that pressure is still put on the government to make sure that this act, which is actually there to help all of us, and we have seen today, will be useful to every single arm of government, including the public? Uh, Yeah, um, and it's very encouraging to hear from Emily that um, they're working around the clock to actually ensure that by the end of this year we'll have um, the full implementation of the Coronas Act. Um, But just to say, um, I think she she gave an answer to a response to what I said. Um, Every single time we, uh, the people from maybe the lower classes, uh, put our realities out here and say that there's actually structural violence, there's criminalization of poverty, people are quick to actually dismiss and say, no, that that is not happening. But that is our story, that is our reality. And even as we are trying to put... um, uh, things in order with the Coronas Act. These are things that we actually need uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to address. Uh, one of the things that we as the grassroots human rights defenders could actually do is uh, sensitize people because I am so sure so many Kenyans, um, three quarter of Kenyans don't even know this uh, uh, Corona Service Act. So how will they get this information? It needs everyone to hold hands. It needs for us who are, who are at the grassroots to actually come together and tell people whether you know, now you do not actually have to panic when um, when you've lost someone, when um, a violation has been has been done. There are people that can actually make sure that you get justice, uh, that you don't have to have that burden of securing the you know the evidence apart from the psychological trauma that you're having. So it is for us to all come together and do our little bits. Uh, for us at the grassroots to actually make sure that Kenyans know that there's the Corona Service Act and uh, how it actually helps them, and for us to also just push um, the government and all uh, all the stakeholders to make sure that um, uh, it, it's it's just even. Uh, 
at, um, at this particular time when it's being implemented, there's no conflict because there is the uh, government uh, pathologist. So what, what is to say that there will be no conflict when the coroner's uh, coroner general and the coroner's uh, get to work, you know. So it is for us to actually ensure and, and make sure that the, the environment is actually conducive so that nobody feels threatened when this um, uh, when this um, implementation actually takes place and um, it helps all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Njoki. That was really good. So Dr. Dor, um, what I was asking you to place is just how you and your office are part of the drive for implementation and how can you contribute and make that be your call of action or if you have anything else to add for the public to understand how you will champion this cause. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, What I'd like to say is, uh, of course, uh, right now we have a system of death investigation, but uh, as I said before, we have uh, a lot of uh, footfalls which are there. We have a team which are committed uh, pathologists we have medical officers who are committed. If they don't think they require is a, a little bit of training so that now they can be up to task. And we have an office. So what we are just uh, calling upon the Office of AG to help us track uh, implementation of this act. We are there. We'll support in uh, any way that you require. Technically, being that uh, we know how the system uh, has been there, no, navigating it uh, might be a, a little bit difficult, but uh, we, 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 are, we are there to support. Of course, uh, we know that uh, once it's implemented, the uh, service will be better. And as I've said, we'll be able to add more cadres. Apart from uh, the doctors, of course, we are other supporting staff which we'll be able to add so that now we have a system which will be able to, to be to the standards of what you see in the West. Of course, we are not saying that we are removing police from uh, investigation because we need them also. You cannot say that now you're investigating without police. We also uh, would love to look on on how we can complement their working so that now there's a system which is accountable. So that Monainchi, when uh, someone dies, Monainchi go out there and happy that uh, something happened. Currently, we are are having a system which are formulated where we involve uh, all stakeholders. Um, As you have seen, you know, my work is always seen out there. Um, someone die, and uh, they are saying that uh, they feel like there's some fall play. And myself, I've always come up with the relatives, and they advise them to look for their own independent pathologists, investigators, that we can do together. Because I know when someone dies, there's no hurry. There's no hurry to, to investigate. Just uh, let, let the people settle get them to get their own doctor, and they, we do it as a team. So with that, uh, we've uh, managed to incorporate, uh, in fact, the homicide team, they're usually very, very happy with our work, and we work with them very well. The DPP also usually very happy, because I know usually when there are high-profile cases, DPP officers always call me and personally to ensure that I'm, I'm in the team, to make sure that everything goes well. And I think it's a blessing that uh, we currently now have a team which uh, we can work and if the act is implemented, we'll always uh, work better than what we are doing now. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, thank you for bringing a lot of uh, light into a very dark topic. Uh, and and we wish you well and we hope that you'll keep the pressure up. Um, Mr. Karanja, I, I think this is the point that you know, you as 
a representative of the legal fraternity out there that go into court. What do you think you can do and what is your call to action as a fraternity in making sure that this act gets implemented? Uh, thank you so much. First, I want to thank uh, Emily for the commitment uh, that she has uh, made. I'm very hopeful that that will be done. And as um, Mr. Kiyama has said, uh, we need to have these continuous engagements on the implementation of this uh, act. And as we say, it's like a child. Now that we know that a child is coming, the gender of the child is known, we can as well prepare and have the clothing and everything that is required for this child. So what I would call is continuous engagement. How would it look like this uh, implementation of this act? What could be challenges and how can we overcome these challenges? So that would be the call that I would have uh, to other stakeholders. Let's come together. Let's foresee it working. What are the likely challenges? How can we overcome? Yes. So Wonderful. thank you so much. Thank you so much for the conveners, uh, like the missing voices and others. Thank you so much, and we hope you'll be able to do this again and again. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Karanja. And I hope you can also rally your own legal fraternity into also being a larger voice in the stakeholder space. Thank um, you. Mr. Nderitu, I know you gave us a little, but just one minute of a call to action, and then we finish off um, this wonderful session, because I think... Uh, Madam Choya gave us the cherry on the cake, and we're really waiting to eat this cake. We're, and, and she's she's taken up a huge, huge commitment today, so I'm not going to tie her anymore in belaboring the point that they are where they are, and we really, really want to thank you, um, because you, I, I told you this in the beginning, you were going to be on the hot seat, and, and you've done, re and I think you are ready for it, because you've come and done a stellar job in, in situating, and we're coming out of here really smiling even though it is uh, with a lot of tears that are behind us and tears to come. But I think as a nation, listening to you, there is hope and the audacity of hope and really being able to understand that hope is something that will light us and has always lit our country is really important. So I Ipoa, because you take the hottest of the hot seat, you, you get to be our final call to action because at the end of the day, police brutalities fall under your docket more than any other docket. So give us your last um, push to what it is that you commit to today moving forward. Thank you very much, uh, moderator. Again, I want to thank all the participants. I want to thank uh, those who came up with this idea of having this webinar. Uh, I think all the issues we would want to discuss may not be uh, covered in this one session. Uh, probably we need uh, many more of these uh, so that we can cover uh, a variety and a wide range of issues. Uh, but uh, let me say that uh, IPOA is open to working with everyone, everybody uh, who, of course, wants to see justice and to have a professionalized and a disciplined uh, national police service. Uh, so uh, civil society, AG service, uh, all the participants here, IPOA is open and ready and willing to work with everyone. Uh, again, I want to repeat the number uh, for all the people so that uh, they can have it, a free toll number, 1559, uh, for all complaints so that uh, we can take them up and, uh, and take the appropriate action. Otherwise, thank you very much. IPOA will be ready and willing to make whatever contribution. As I said uh, at the beginning, this act would really make our work easier and facilitate our presentation of, uh, uh, of uh, these uh, documents and evidence in the court. We need it like yesterday. And therefore, anything that can be done so that this 
act is operationalized uh, and the, the service is uh, up and moving, we are ready uh, to move and participate in everything. Thank you very much. Uh, so to round it up, thank you so much for your patience, everybody. We have gone over time, but I felt the need to let you go over the stipulated moments because th this, this has been a very um, elucidating, engaging. It has brought to light so much that um, a lot of lay people wouldn't know. And I feel the call to action for us who are attendees, for us who are not in the system, is actually to go out there, like um, Joki said, and, and sensitize people and, and make sure that these acts and these processes are seen to work along what we need for humanity to prevail in our country. So without further ado, I want to thank the hosts and I thank the organizers, the Heinrich Bowl Foundation, Missing Voices for the amazing work that they continue to do every day. And uh, let's just move out of here, thanking God that we are here to actually witness and be a part of this and um, to pray for the souls that haven't been here and never to forget that the work we do is what will save a life, will continue to save lives and bring a lot of healing and recovery to our country. So thank you so much, everybody in the back room, in the front room, panelists, and we hope we can convene again. All the best. Thank you.